Throughout scripture, God says, I'm like your husband. You're like my bride. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus said, I'm the bridegroom, right? I'm the groom and the church is the bride of Christ. Put it all together and here's what God's really saying. Have no other gods before me. Bring no other gods into my presence. It's like saying on the wedding night, I'm not into open marriage. Don't bring other lovers. Hello, and welcome to the FBC Sermon Podcast. Today's sermon is titled Idol Factories and was based on Exodus 21 through 6. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. Two fish were swimming in the ocean. They were younger fish. It was a beautiful day, sunny day. The water was crystal clear. The current was gentle, and they're swimming along. And then an older fish passes them by. And the older fish says, hey, how, how you doing? Um, how's the water today? And passes by and, and they continue swimming. And a couple minutes later, one of them looks to the other and he says, what's water? And the other one said, I have no idea. And they continue swimming. Now, if you wonder, why did Greg share that smaltzy story with you? Here's why. I think we're a lot like those fish. And the reason is because I think often we can be swimming through our lives and really not be aware of what's often really happening around us. A lot of the subtle seductions in our culture. We can sometimes not really be thinking, what's the current of our culture? What what are the waves of our society that often we don't even notice, but can take us to places we never could have Imagine. I think sometimes we can be really unaware of the appetites, the longings, the loves that are deep within our heart because our hearts are so easily deluded. Sometimes we can be confused about the story in which we're really swimming. Let's remember the plot of whatever story in which we're swimming through life will determine what the virtues and the mission of our life is. Our culture has narratives about what the plot line is swimming through life. And Christ has a very different, although they overlap, a very different set of, of, of virtues and vision for our lives. What's the meta narrative in which we find ourselves swimming? Are we even aware of the difference between the kingdom of God and so often the cultures of our world? Now, it can be easy for us to think that idols were these ancient statues that primitive people bowed down to. But you know, the truth is, I think there's a higher percentage in our culture and in this generation bowing down to idols than there ever were in the ancient world. Because idols in our culture are far more seductive. We find their shrines wrapped often in beautiful looking things. Some of them are office towers. Some of them are gyms. Some are stadiums. Some are the people who we date. Some of them are the websites that we view. Some of them are substances. And all of them demand sacrifices, just like the idols of the ancient world. As a matter of fact, there are good things that can become idols and become destructive in our lives when they supplant God on the throne of our hearts. Or when we search for life, when we look for meaning, in places that can never truly give us life and meaning and purpose like God. You know, there's a lot of different types of idols. Some of them are personal idols. 
You know, some of the classic idols like status, career, that social circle, if we could just get into, or our appearance, if we just look like that, or the house we have, or even our family. If our family could just look like this, then I'll feel successful, and people will view me, and I'll, I'll, I'll feel validated. But there's also cultural idols. Or even good things, economic prosperity or military power or political positions or imperialism can become idols in a culture that we can be blinded to because we're swimming in it and we often don't ask, what really is water? What are we really swimming in? And so because of this, we're launching a sermon series that will take us through February and March all the way through Palm Sunday, just before Easter, 10 weeks together. And the goal of Habits of the Heart is to help identify the idols of our culture. To, to help us to dethrone those idols from our hearts. But not only dethrone those idols, but then to develop habits in order to put God back on the throne of our hearts. Because if we just tear out idols and we leave it void, other idols will fill it unless we replace those idols, with greater motivation for and affection for God. And habits are a key way to make that happen. Because habits are those small things that over time, we don't even think about we're doing. Kind of like driving a car, right? When we first begin driving a car, we're thinking about everything, aren't we? Where's the clock? And all the radios on, and all windshield wipers. And, ah, okay, right? But then after a while, it becomes habitual and we're not even thinking about it. And so the things that we form habits in our lives help to create the virtues that help to train our hearts to supplant idols with deeper affection for God on the throne of our lives. Now, to begin with, let's join together in Exodus chapter 20. So it's on page 73 for those who are in the house. Those who are remote watching now or throughout the week um, uh, find Exodus chapter 20. Let's everyone join here together. Now, I want to make a pledge to you through this series, and I pray forever. See, one of the greatest idols for preachers, the throne of the pulpit, that's too many preachers, and it's easy for every preacher to bow down to, is pleasing people, to tell them what they want to hear, because that way, on the way, oh, Pastor, that was a good sermon. It helped me to feel good. Thank you. But I want to pledge to you, I am not going to, I'm going to fight the battle and continue for my life to fight the battle against the idol of pleasing people. And instead, tell us what I comprehend and how God's Spirit guides us for truth. Truth telling. Because that's what's transformative in our lives. So Exodus chapter 20, will you join me in verse 2? I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God front and loads our motivation before going any further to introduce really the character of God and God's calling for our lives. God front and loads motivation. You know, why would we commit our lives to God? Why would we, through this sermon series, and I pray every day of our lives, why would we do Heart surgery, where we're, where we're ripping open our hearts and we're saying, God, would you expose my heart to the things that you're cheering on and those things you're going to convict me? Why, why would we do that? It's a lot safer to just leave it closed. Why would we battle against the idols of our culture, even though some of us can seemingly give us more instant gratification in the moment when we need a next fix? 
Why would we choose to sometimes live countercultural even when there's a cost? What's the motivation to follow Christ? Well, God communicates, I'm your God. Now let's remember who God's talking to. He's talking to runaway slaves. In the Exodus, God has brought these enslaved people uh, out of slavery, liberated them, and now is covenanting to call them His own precious people. They were the lowest people on earth socially, culturally, politically. They were slaves, and God set them free. That's our story. See, they were slaves in Egypt. We've been enslaved to sin and darkness and depravity and insecurity. They were set free because they put their faith in the blood of the Lamb. What a funky thing that God asked them to do. Take a lamb, sacrifice it, put a little blood over the doorpost. They must, we know the story, but they must have been thinking, God, I don't know, but, but we trust God, so we're going to put the blood over the doorposts. And through that, God liberated them. We've put our faith in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, whose blood covers over our sins and liberates us and sets us free to be God's people. In the Exodus, God had set His people free. We have been set free out of our bondage to sin and Satan and darkness. That's our motivation. What can motivate us more than the God who's the lover of our soul? The true, the, not the counterfeit God, but the true and the living God who has liberated us on the cross to be His beloved, treasured people. Not based on our performance, but because of His grace that we're now responding to in our everyday lives. Our motivation. Move to verse 3 then. It's natural out of this that this unique God, unique in all of human history, can say in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Now it's fascinating because these words, no other God before, this isn't ranked choice voting, okay? This isn't saying before like, oh, okay, so as long as God's first, you can have other idols, other gods, other deities, other rival loves, as long as God's just 51%. That's not what this, it's not before in order. Matter of fact, the word before is the Hebrew word, it's, it, 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 it's a preposition that's actually connected, and it's the Hebrew word chal. And it's before like in the presence of. Kind of like you might say all the people were before the bride and groom in the presence of the bride and groom for the wedding. What God's really saying is, you shall have no other gods in my presence. Now, throughout Scripture, there, there's a portrait where God calls Himself our husband. Throughout Scripture, God says, I'm like your husband. You're like my bride. That's why in the New Testament, Jesus said, I'm the bridegroom, right? I'm the groom, and the church is the bride of Christ. Put it all together, and here's what God's really saying. Have no other gods before me. Bring no other gods into my presence. It's like saying on the wedding night, when we come into intimate relationship, God says, I'm not into open marriage. What God's saying is, listen, don't bring other lovers before me into the bedroom of intimacy with God, into our marriage relationship with God. See, all of us know the anguish of adultery. Probably all of us know someone who we've seen because of adultery. There was pain and hurt and betrayal. And Scripture de describes sin 
describes adultery, uh, describes idolatry as spiritual adultery. See, in every decision we make, we're really saying, do I, go, do I love God more or do I love what seems like the quick fix of this? Which do I love more? Who am I going to sleep with in this moment? Am I going to be true to covenant like a marriage covenant with God or, or am I going to invite this into the marriage with God? It's almost like we're saying, you know, God, this is really cool, but could you move over a little bit? I've got some more, some more gods to come in with us. And so then naturally, verse 4 flows from this to say that you shall make for yourself uh, no other image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or, or, or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Now let's understand what God is and isn't saying. This is not saying that, that, that symbols point to God are bad. No, those can be good. Symbols that point to God are things like the cross or communion. We'll celebrate communion, the Eucharist, later this morning together. Or maybe artwork that's theologically informed that helps point us to the gospel story. Those are beautiful things. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about anytime there is an image that takes the place of God. Isn't it fascinating? In the top ten. This is the Ten Commandments in the top ten. This is like the summary of God's message to humanity. This is the preamble to the covenant. This is like the table of contents to the law. And number one, front end loaded is idolatry. Why is that? Because we were created to worship. God has created us with this insatiable desire. It's like there's a compass, a beacon in our hearts to worship. And when we worship God, we become more like God. We, we don't become gods, but we become more like God. We begin to reflect God into the world around us as beautiful witnesses of who God is. But every time we worship idols, every time we look for love and validation, hope and meaning and purpose in the wrong places, anywhere besides God, as what's on the throne of our hearts, we begin to be warped and we become more like that. Whatever that idol is. If our idol is acceptance, we'll do whatever it takes to fit in. And we'll become vulnerable to lose ourselves and do whatever it is that whatever the crowd, wherever we're seeking acceptance, they'll own us. And we'll be vulnerable. If the idol we bow down to is body image, we will never look good enough and we'll feel like we're ugly. Matter of fact, my heart's broken for a younger generation who, especially women, I'll say men, but especially women, who, who have seen airbrushed photos and, and who have seen you know, digitally remastered things or porn or social media posturing. And there's a generation, especially of women growing up, thinking, I'm not beautiful. Because when we bow down to the idolatry of body image. Now, once again, body image can be a beautiful thing, right? God can, or Satan can take good things and turn them into idols. But as soon as it supplants God, we'll never look good enough. If the idol we bow down to is love, then we'll do whatever it takes to keep the person who makes us feel loved. And we'll make sacrifices to that idol. Whatever it takes for us to continue to feel loved. 
If the idol we bow down to is family, once again, a good thing, but can be warped into an idol, then we'll drive our children to succeed or to act a certain way, to look a certain way, so that then we will look good. And people say, oh, what a great family. But you, man, you are stellar people. And we're really feeding the idol in our hearts to look good. If the idol that we bow down to is success, we can never achieve enough. Because once we achieve a next status, we realize, oh, there's always, <laughs> you know, there's silver, gold, platinum, you know, there's always the next, right? And we will feel like we're faking it because we don't feel like we can ever achieve enough. One other example, if our idol that we bow down to is marriage, oh, we so want to be married, which is a beautiful thing. We so want to be married. We will, or there will be some people who will marry marriage and not a person. I've known people who married marriage and not a person. They just so wanted to be married that they were marrying the idea of marriage and then they wake up someday into the future and think, why, why did I marry this person? Because they had to make a sacrifice on the altar of the idol of marriage in order to get marriage in a, married in, in a time where it either wasn't God's call or uh, however the sovereignty of God fits into it. And so now God speaks to our hearts in a powerful way. Move forward in, in, in verse 5. Because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is jealous? No, wait, wait, wait. Does this mean God is insecure? Does this mean God wants to control us? Does this mean God is a narcissist who says, listen, I'm so jealous. I mean, put me first or I'm going to be really angry because I'm insecure, right? That's not at all what this is saying. Matter of fact, it's beautiful that God is a jealous God. Why is God jealous? Because we become whatever we love. And when we love God, we become more like God. When we love anything else more than God and it goes onto the throne, of our, we'll be warped by those things and those things will own us in a fallen world. Just imagine with me that, we, that there's someone who we love and they're in an abusive relationship. Probably most of us have been involved in, in some kind of gentle or more overt um, intervention with someone who is in an abusive relationship. It's extremely painful, isn't it? As we see someone in an abusive relationship who we know they're experiencing painful abuse, it, it's warping their self-image. It's, it's, they're being influenced by the control of someone abusive to them. You see, God is jealous for us. God is zealous for us. God is passionate. If you don't like the word jealous, put passionate in there instead. God is jealous for us, zealous for us, passionate for us, because God wants us to escape the abusive relationship with Satan, sin, darkness, insecurity, brokenness, and idolatry. And God is jealous, zealous, passionate with intervention so we would by His power and the blood of Christ, break away from those abusive relationships with those idols. What we're seeking for validation, love, hope, purpose in counterfeit places and longs for us to worship God, not because God needs our worship. God's perfect, complete community, Father, Son, Holy. God doesn't need anything from us. But because God knows that will shape us more like God and we'll experience real life and reflect who God is in a broken, damaged, wounded world. 
Well, how jealous is God? How zealous is God? God was willing to come in Christ and sacrifice His life on the cross for an intervention to empower us to break out of the abusive relationships with sin, Satan, darkness, and idols. So God front-end loads with motivation. God has brought us out of slavery to be His beloved treasured people. And now this wraps up with motivation. Let's finish verse 5 and move into verse 6 to wrap it all up. Punishing the children for the sins of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, this is not saying... Let's understand the whole counsel of God, how Scripture interprets Scripture. This is not saying, mm, if the parents sin, oh, God is just waiting to take out the next three or four generations. That's not what this is saying. What this is really saying is, is that the Hebrew word is really better translated visit. Matter of fact, the old King James said visit. In other words, the sins of the parents will be visited upon three or four generations. We see that, don't we? Generational sins. God is cautioning, if you need motivation for why to follow God, front end load because God has rescued you and me from our slavery and set us free. But not only about ourselves, but also God is saying motivation, remember, if you worship idols, there's going to be wreckage not only for you, but it's going to have impact in your society and in generations to come. This is a loving warning from God. Maybe you have some generational wreckage in your life. Maybe from your family of origin. Maybe from your current family. Maybe from our culture. You're at the end of isms that have created wreckage for you and, and your tribe. I want to remind us we can break the cycles. The power of the cross. The empowering of the Holy Spirit. We can break those cycles. My story is evidence of this. My parents, who I love deeply, both grew up in alcoholic homes filled with incredible wreckage and violence and uncertainty. I never saw my parents drink alcohol. My parents provided stability and love the best they could in our home. They broke the cycle. And I'm the inheritor of that. We can break the cycles. God is not saying it's going to happen. What God is saying is it'll be visited and we'll need to be aware of it. And we'll need to offensively make sure that those things that could be weaknesses in our lives because of generational sins that we deal with and that we're empowered then to bring change. And we might be part of those thousands of generations that are blessed because of people who have supplanted idols, put God more deeply on the throne of our lives, and through that there's greater blessing for generations to come. It's also challenging because isn't it easy for us to think, oh, this is a harmless little, little issue, sin. You know, no one will know. This isn't going to hurt anybody. Isn't that our culture's mantra? It isn't going to hurt anybody. And, and I deserve this. And, and if you knew what I've overcome, you would understand why I do this. But, but let's remember, every time we yield to those idols, every time, we bat, every time we're called to make a sacrifice that seems in the moment 
like it's the next fix, then it shapes our heart. It warps our heart. More like whatever that is. And it will demand greater sacrifices into the future. Because idols are never satisfied. And the other thing is that we'll have wreckage for the people we share life with. And potentially for generations to come. To wrap this all up, I just I want to remind us that when Moses comes down the mountain, do you remember what happened a few chapters later? He comes down the mountain and the Hebrew people, Moses was there too long, they panicked. They built a golden calf, so they began to worship the gods who they'd worshipped or the people surrounding them had worshipped before in Egypt. <laughs> that quickly the people were already starting because uh, starting to worship idols because the heart is an idol factory that churns out idols unless we supplant those constantly and we have greater affection for God in our lives. Do you remember what Moses made them do? He made them grind the golden calf up, stir it into liquid, and drink it. Now, before we think, boy, Moses, that was vindictive, okay? This is what this really is. And, 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 and you'll receive a, a devotional email this week about, about the passage which I'm citing now with some other insights about it. It was one of those passages that, many, many passages that hit to the editing floor that there just wasn't room for in this particular message, but, or in this particular um, series. But why did, why did Moses have them grind up the calf and, and, and drink it? Two things. So they would always remember, idolatry has a bitter aftertaste. It may seem like, oh, nice and shiny, but man, eventually, it, if we drink it, there's going to be a bitter aftertaste for us. And the second thing is to remind the people, <laughs> don't think you can casually do this. It's going to internalize. It's going to be part of your system. It's going to warp your heart. The heart is an idol factory. The word idol or idolatry we read 234 times throughout Scripture because we become whatever we love. So here's the question. Here's our homework for the sunsets tonight to take a few minutes and just reflect. What's really on the throne of our hearts? Remember Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? It's easy for us to deceive ourselves. Not what do we think should be. What's really sitting in the throne of our hearts? What might God be calling us to remove and to replace with greater love and affection for God so that we desire God more than anything else in the compass, in the GPS of our hearts? Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what we do here at FBC, please visit our website, fbcamers.org. Also, consider subscribing to this podcast so you can get a notification when our weekly sermons are posted. Again, thank you for listening to this podcast. Have a great day.